Father, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. Thank you that your word is, is unchanging, it's unwavering, and it's sufficient for us. May our hearts be conformed to what you say in your word. And may I be of benefit to these people as I communicate your word. Thank you that we don't gather to hear any man's words, but we gather to hear your word, God's words. Bless us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week marks five months that, since, since uh, Christina and I moved here. And now that we've been here for five months, I feel like I can disclose something to you about myself. <laughs> the, uh, I like things to be in order, and I like things to be str- neat and just in their right place. I like them to be as I expect them to be. So if I'm at your house sometime in the next few months and I see a wall and there's a picture that's crooked, don't be offended if I get up and straighten the picture. And one thing that people like to do a lot these days is these, these uh, wall, pic- wall, I don't know even how to say it. Yeah, gallery wall. All right, that's the right term. Yeah, so a lot of pictures. And what people don't get though is like, I mean, it's a lot of work to get 20 pictures all lined up and straight. <laughs> And uh, most people don't give the necessary effort. So, I mean, just these, uh, these evidences of the fall that I see, I like to correct. Um, so I like things, things should be in order. Things should be as, as I expected, expect them to be. But in the fallen world that we live in, this should not be so for you and me as Christians. In the eyes of the world, our lives shouldn't make sense. When the world looks at a Christian, they should see a life that they don't expect. It shouldn't quite fit in and it shouldn't quite make sense. The title of this morning's sermon is The Confounding Life of the Christian. To confound is about disparity between what one expects and what one sees. It acts against the expectations of the onlooker. The Christian's life should confound the watching world. Our lives, your life and my life, they should confound the watching world. And isn't that confounding place where we increasingly are as Christians in today's culture? The problem is, though, that it's uncomfortable for us. We like to fit in. We like to be as we're expected to be. One author said, too often we are as countercultural as Christians as we want to be. And that's not nearly enough to turn our churches, much less the world, upside down. Too bad, too often we're as countercultural just as we want to be. To be a faithful Christian in today's society is often to be marginalized. It's to be looked upon as a bigot and abnormal and strange. And we've got to be okay with that. The American worldview falls into thinking that all that goes on today is about progress, and, and mostly that's about sexual progress. The sexual revolution is about progress, reproductive rights are about progress. Transgender activism and homosexual marriage, they're about progress. And as Christians, you better get on board or get out the way, because this is progress. We need to see this dissonance and not be uncomfortable with it. We need to see it not as a hindrance to our witness, but to see it as an opportunity for our witness. The confounding life of the Christian is more reflective of the reality that this world is not our home. We're not living for this world. We live for a heavenly home, an eternal home. Our hope, our hope as Christians is in a confounding message. The power of the gospel shines bright, not in how it makes sense, but in how it confounds. 
We proclaim a gospel that is foolishness to the world. We gather together, and it is folly to the world. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 14 and 16, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. But we have the mind of Christ. Our faith does not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And the power of God is most clearly known in the confounding message of the gospel. So for us today, how are we then to live? What should our confounding lives look like? How can our lives reflect this crazy message of the gospel? Today there is wisdom for us in the words of Jesus. As we look at John 13, we're going to start in verse 31 and go through chapter 14, verse 4. We'll see that the, the life of the faithful Christian reveals the confounding reality of the gospel. The life of the faithful Christian reveals the confounding reality of the gospel. And Jesus has exemplified this confounding life. In his public ministry, Jesus has confounded the leaders and the Jewish people by being everything they didn't expect him to be and everything they didn't want him to be. The Jewish people wanted a conqueror who was going to free them from Roman oppression. The Jewish people wanted a king who would majestically reign. They wanted the fireworks and the pomp and the circumstance. But what they never expected was a carpenter from Nazareth. And now privately before his disciples, Jesus continues to confound and perplex those around him. The Jesus whom the disciples have heard teach. They've seen him heal the sick, open the eyes of the blind, calm a storm, walk on water, cast out demons, raise the dead to life. This Jesus they followed. They believed to be the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the coming king, and he's supposed to be inaugurating his kingdom. But instead of dealing with the mess of the world outside, he is in this rented room on a Thursday night washing feet. And then after washing the disciples' feet, Jesus goes back to the meal and joins, joins the disciples. But a troubled look comes over him. We'll see in verse 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Think about for the disciples what this moment must have been like for them. These, this is the Jesus they have seen all, do all these amazing, incredible things. They've followed him. They've given up everything to follow him for the last three years. And Jesus is saying, one of you will betray me. John is there next to Jesus, sitting next to him, leaning on him. And when Jesus makes this statement, one of you will betray, betray me, and trying to make sense of it all, Peter nods to him, like, that's you, get on it. And John gets the message. John interrupts Jesus. Jesus is sitting there dipping, dipping bread and water, taking bites of bread in the wine. And John said, Lord, who is it? And Jesus, in between bites, tells him, it's the one to whom I will give this bread. And without any flair for the dramatic, Jesus dips that piece of bread and passes across the table to Judas. The disciples don't know what's going on. John is the only one that's had this interaction with Jesus. Just think about what that moment must have been like, the weight of that moment. And Jesus tells Judas what you are going to do Go and do quickly. So as the disciples are trying to process this moment, Judas gets up, leaving the light of this room, leaving the the food and the friends and the fellowship, and goes out into the night. 
Jesus leaves the very light of the world to rush out into darkness. And that's where we are now. Now that Judas has departed, Jesus turns to his faithful disciples. He turns to the ones who trust in him and hope in him. And he discloses to these true disciples what their lives should look like after he himself departs. And that's where we're going to be the next several weeks. It's called the Farewell Discourse. Chapters 13 through 17 in John are, are given to really one long conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. We're going to be focusing on the first part of that conversation. And we'll see how Jesus, even in this troubling moment for him, as he was preparing to go to the cross and to suffer the ultimate punishment and being separated from God, bearing the wrath of God, we'll see Jesus's tender love and care for his disciples. And for John, these are Jesus' departing words. Everything, everything is going to be different in a few short hours after this conversation ends. So turn with me now, if you're there already, to John 13, verse 31. And this, this is the word of the Lord. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek Me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to Him for His Word. Through His teaching, Jesus both gives us examples and tells us what the life of the confounding Christian, what the life of a disciple should look like. He shows that the life of the faithful Christian reveals the confounding reality of the Gospel. And this morning we're going to look at three characteristics of the faithful Christian. First, we'll look at the faithful Christian is committed to God's Word. Second, we'll see that the faithful Christian emulates God's love. And third, we'll see that the faithful Christian finds contentment in God's promise. God's glory, God's love, God's promise. So number one, verses 31 through 33. The faithful Christian is committed to God's glory. Let's look to the example of Jesus and understand something of how we are to live our lives, what we are to commit ourselves to. 
The moment that Judas departs bears enormous significance for Jesus. The wheels have now been fully set in motion. And the time for which Jesus has come is here. This is His hour. Now. Now, Jesus says. Now was the Son of Man glorified. The glory of Jesus is not seen first and foremost in the wisdom of His teaching. Though no one ever taught like Him. The glory of Jesus is not relegated just to the faithfulness of life, of his life, though no one walked the earth like he did. The glory of Jesus is not found in the power of his miracles, though no one did what he did. No, the glory of Jesus shines brightest in this hour, in this hour for which he came, shines brightest on the road to the cross in his death. It is through Jesus being obedient to death that God glorifies his Son. This is confounding. This is insanity. But not only is Jesus glorified in this hour, as you see in the next phrase, God is glorified in Him. The Son of Man is glorified, Jesus is glorified, and God is glorified through Jesus. This is the point of the life of Jesus, the glory of God. He lived to make much of God. He was relentlessly committed to seeing God and God alone glorified. That's what his life was all about. That's how we are called to live as well. We are called to be oriented to the glory of God. Now glory, it's not a category that we think about day to day. But glory can just be understood in a lot of ways as another word for for pride. We glory in or we are, we are proud about certain things. We boast in certain things. But the life of the Christian is not about self-glory. It's not about self-exaltation. It's not about making much of ourselves. The life of the Christian is about making much of God. It's about living for someone else. Now in my pride, maybe you're like me, in my pride and my desire for self-glory, we're all wired that way. We can spend, I can spend a lot of time trying to convince others that I'm as great as I think I am. I'll think I'm pretty great, pretty smart, pretty funny, pretty wise, pretty caring, all fine things. But I'll give myself to trying to convince other people that I'm as great as I think I am. And most of us give ourselves, we spend our time and our energy on our own little self-glory projects. We pour our time into making other people kind of line up with how great we think we are. But the glory of God should be our orientation, not the glory of ourselves, just as it was for Jesus Christ. Paul writes these familiar words in Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the confounding reality of the cross. Jesus, in committing himself to God's glory, ultimately accomplished his own glory. Or put another way, by living to glorify God, Jesus was himself glorified. Look at verse 32. If God is glorified in him, 
God will also glorify Him in Himself and glorify Him at once. Now in the eyes of the world, this is insanity. The world says, look out for number one. The world says, climb the ladder. The world says it's all about you and what you want. The world says, live for your own glory. But our call as Christians is to die to ourselves. Our call as Christians is to emulate Christ. And what Jesus shows us is an unswerving, an unwavering commitment to God's glory. The Westminster Shorter Catechism sums it up beautifully. In the first question, it says, what is the chief end of man? What is man's primary purpose? And the answer is the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Like Jesus, that's what our lives are to be all about. They're to be all about the glory of God. Faithful Christians are characterized by commitment to the glory of God. So we look to God, and we obey God, and we are satisfied in God. And that is when God is glorified. Now notice Jesus' resolute focus on walking faithfully in obedience to the Father. He says in verse 33, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus knows the road to suffering that he is on. Jesus knows that this is a road that only he can walk. In order for God to be glorified, in order for him to walk in obedience, he must go forward alone. And by walking alone in faithful and committed obedience to God, God will be most glorified and Jesus will be most exalted. So we want to be like that. We want to be committed, committed, always and ever to the glory of God. Now imagine John and the disciples in this moment. Again, they've given up everything to follow this man. They've been following him for three and a half years. And then Jesus tells them, where I am going, you cannot come. Their jaws must hit the floor. What do you mean we can't come? They've heard Jesus say this before to Jewish leaders and those who don't believe in God, but they, he's never said it to them. But before they interject, Jesus continues and calls them to emulate his love. So point number two, faithful Christians are characterized by emulation of God's love. We're called to emulate God's love. This is verse 30, verses 34 and 35. Here Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now the first question we have to deal with here is this commandment's newness. Is this commandment, what is new about it? Is it really new? And Jewish tradition, Leviticus 19.18, it says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the idea of loving one another, loving your neighbor, was, was part and parcel of, of being a Jew. It was the fabric of their existence. But what is new about this commandment? Is it standard? What's new about this commandment is it's standard. It's no longer just loving as you love, loving your neighbor as yourself. It's loving as he loved. It's about emulating his love. We love because he has loved. So how does he love? One, one thing that I did this, this past week was these, these words, love one another, bore enormous significance for John. And if you go to 1 John, you'll see again and again this theme of loving one another, this new command come up again and again. So I'd encourage you, just some point this week, 
Take 15, 20 minutes and read through First John and see what an effect this had on John and, and how we are called to live as a result of this love. And one thing that John writes in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that He, that Jesus, laid down His life for us. And again, he says in 1 John 4, verse 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. He came to be the propitiation. That means He came to satisfy God's wrath on our pla- in our place. He suffered for us. He took our place. He gave Himself that we might be sons and daughters of God. Now you may be here this morning not knowing if you're a son or daughter of God, not having placed your trust and your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you, if you believe. Today, today can be a day of salvation for you. And I encourage you to look to Him. Look to a holy God who created the heavens and the earth. He created a people for His glory to bring honor to His name. But this people has failed again and again. Everyone in this room has failed again and again to faithfully bring glory to Him. Everyone, when you walk out these doors, everyone that you face has failed to bring glory to Him again and again and again. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus, God sent His Son, Jesus, to take our place to bear our sin, to live the life that God required, to die the death that we deserved. Jesus suffered for us. In this is love. So today, if you have not placed your trust in Him, turn to Him. Trust in Him. Trust in what He has done for you and you can never do for yourself. Today, today can be a day of salvation for you. See how God loves us. His call to us today, His new command, as I have loved you, love one another. Now remember, Judas has just left. Jesus is now speaking to His faithful disciples. And that's it. So this command to love one another is really for the context of of Christian community. This is the message that God gives to His faithful disciples. Love each other. So, Grace Church, as John writes in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love for one another is the distinctive mark of the Christian community. Jesus here boils down all of the law and all of the prophets into this one command, into this one phrase. As I have loved you, love one another. Now, our love for one another doesn't look like the world. In the world's eyes, love is often defined by acceptance and pleasure and tolerance. But our love for one another should really be the cultivation of a countercultural community. Our love for one another should make Christianity strange in the eyes of the world. Our love for one another should confound the world around us. See what Jesus says in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You won't look like the people around you if you have love for one another. But this command, lest we be confused this morning, this command is not to the exclusion 
of loving the lost and the spiritually dead. It's not love one another and hate everyone else. No. It's by loving one another that we are able to be reflective of His light. We become lights in the dark world just as He is the light of the world. We bring hope to the world by our love for one another. We reflect the confounding reality of the gospel by our love for one another. So what does it look like to be a community marked by loving one another? Now, when you sat down this morning, you probably didn't realize the deal that you were going to get because I'm going to give you like a mini sermon in a sermon. Sermon in a sermon? Yeah, so you're getting two for the price of one this morning. So, I mean, hopefully you don't have anywhere to be because it'll probably be like an extra hour. But, no. No, briefly, I just want to talk about what does it look like to be this community marked by loving one another. So I'm going to say three things here. First, in the Christian community, our primary identity is found in Christ. Our primary identity is found in Christ. We don't gather together because of our common interests. We don't gather together because we all like the same football team or because we all like to go to the same restaurants. No, our identity is in Christ. Our identity is not in our marital status or our season of life. We don't gather together because we're all married or we're all single or we're all older or we're all younger. No, our identity is in Christ. Our identity is not in our income bracket. We don't want to be a church filled with people who are all upper middle class or all lower class. No, the gospel brings together people from all classes. Our identity is not in how much money we make. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. All of those other things, common interests and marital status, season of life, income bracket, those are the things that the world is brought together by. You can go to a Redskins game. Well, I guess you'd go to a Panthers game because it's in Charlotte today. But you go to a Panthers game and there's a lot of people there from a lot of different income brackets and live in a lot of different lives. But they're all together for one common purpose. The world can bring those things together. But the gospel of Jesus Christ creates a new community, a new identity that is not found in those other things. It's found in a man. It's found in Jesus Christ. So moreover, identity is not defined by the color of one's skin. Identity is not found in the language that you speak. Identity is not rooted in the country or region that you came from. No, God in Jesus Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility and made in himself one new man, Jesus Christ. But lest you get the wrong idea, I'm not just talking about ethnic diversity here. We don't just all want to look different. Diversity is not the goal and diversity is not enough. Things like income and season of life and interests, they all can reflect ethnic diversity. But the gospel, the gospel is about reconciliation. We have been reconciled to God and now because of our new identity in Christ, we can be reconciled to one another. We can truly love one another. Our gospel is a gospel of reconciliation. We are called as Christians to something greater and more heavenly than ethnic diversity. We are called to the ministry of reconciliation. In terms of race, Jarvis Williams says, racial reconciliation means that different races are now members of the same spiritual family by their faith in Christ because of his death for sin. And they have equal access to God by the same spirit since Jesus recreated all who believe into one new man. This new man is the new race in Christ. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, I think I know where Ephesians is. 
Paul says this. Ephesians 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. As a Christian community, our primary identity is found in Christ. Second, in the Christian community, our love is manifested in forbearance and forgiveness. Because we are all about reconciliation, we've received this gospel of reconciliation, this reconciliation doesn't just characterize our community on racial lines, but on relational lines. Because we are aware of all that we have been forgiven of. We are to be a community that is quick to forgive others. This room is full of sinful people. Sorry, but that's just the, the reality of this world. I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but sin is the relational air that we breathe. Since this is the case in one sense, we should expect in our relationships to be sinned against. It's going to happen and it shouldn't surprise us, especially in the context of the church. But God's call to us to love one another as he has loved us means we're going to be marked by forbearance and forgiveness. When God saved you, probably within a few minutes, a few hours of you putting your trust in him, you sinned. But God didn't renege your salvation. He didn't say, oh, that was your chance, now you're done. No, that's not how the mercy of God works. He forbears with us. So when others inevitably, when they inevitably wrong you, you have an opportunity to extend that same divine mercy to others. And in a similar vein, God graciously forgives us. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We confess and he forgives. So we should also forgive as Christ forgives us. When someone sins against you, it's an opportunity it's an opportunity to bring something of the divine into your relationship and extend grace. It's an otherworldly grace. You wouldn't need grace. Get this. You wouldn't need grace if everyone around you acted sinless or as you wanted them to. You wouldn't need grace. We wouldn't need it. But we can bring God's grace into all of our relationships by being a people, by being a people who are quick to forgive. So let us be a community that is leaning forward leaning forward and seizing every opportunity to reflect God's love for us by bearing with one another and forgiving one another. Third, in the Christian community, our love is characterized by sacrificial service. The sacrificial service of Christ is what we have been won by, and sacrificial service is what we have been won to. Because He loves us and lays down His life for us, we are to love others and lay down our lives for others. John writes, again, 1 John three sixteen through 18, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. We are to love in deed and 
and truth. That means we actually have to do something. We can't sit idly by and approach the church and Christian community as if it's just there for us to meet our needs. No, we are not just Christian consumers. We are active participants, leaning forward, serving one another, loving one another. Every day we have the call. Moreover, we we have the opportunity to love one another as Christ loves. And Grace Church, even being here five months, I've seen you excel at this. And even, even in the past couple weeks, examples abound. Jonathan and Minnie Gaska yesterday moved. People rallied around them, served them sacrificially, and made that move go smoothly for them. Or Denise Griney has been in the hospital, and Julie Menard has just faithfully been a friend, walking with her and caring for her and meeting her needs. Or over the last several months, Nora Earls and Eli Price have regularly gone with Kathy Charnley to her chemo treatments and cared for her and walked alongside her. What a rich blessing it is to be a part of a community that sacrificially serves one another. Thank you. Thank you, church, for setting an example. But we are here. We are here to grow together. That's what it means to be a part of Grace Church. We want to grow as disciples and help others grow as disciples. So with that in mind, I just want to give some practical Steps we might love one another in the next today, in the next week, and in the next month. So today, I want to encourage you. Seek someone out to encourage. Build someone up with your words. There are, there are evidences of God's grace at work in the lives of those around us. And we often don't stop and recognize them. And thank God for them and thank others for them. So I encourage you, just take that step today. Encourage someone. Build someone up. Next week... Pray about where you sit in church. Now, we don't have a, like a plethora of options here. There are only so many seats available. But come to church next week with a disposition that, one, God is going to meet us. Be expectant. God is going to meet us. But then, two, God wants to use you in this gathering. God wants you to use you to encourage others. And by praying before we come and by kind of stepping out of the routine of, for me, piling the kids in the car and and peacefully, of course, just (laughs) rushing over here, praying, pausing, gives us an opportunity to acknowledge our dependence on God and to ask for His help. And it reorients our thinking. So it's not so much about us and getting what we want and getting what we need and having our needs met. It's about how can we play a part and serve and love one another. So pray about where you sit next week. And this month, I encourage you to share a meal with someone that's in a different season of life than you. Take an interest in others and enjoy the confounding reality of the gospel as it brings together people who, in the world's eyes, have nothing to do with one another. That's what the gospel does. It, it creates a new community. It creates a supernatural community. And by this all people will know that you are Jesus' disciples. Really, what this is all about is to be what one author terms a, a gospel-revealing community. Through the way we live and the way we interact, we want people to see the gospel. We want to be a gospel-revealing community. Our emulation of the love of God should truly confound the world. All right, so mini sermon over. Back to our regularly, regularly scheduled programming. The disciples are here, gathered around Jesus. And honestly, I think they've just, they just totally missed verses 34 and 35. Jesus was talking, but they weren't listening. And 
They're still picking their jaws up off the floor after what Jesus said in verse 33, where I am going, you cannot come. And what transpires next, we will see that the faithful Christian, number three, is characterized by contentment in God's promises. This will be verses 36 through 14, verse 4. As soon as Peter can get a word in edgewise, he asks, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, verse 36, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now. But then Jesus gives a future hope. He gives a promise. But you will follow afterward. Jesus says that yes, yes, I'm going to depart and be gone and you can't come. But don't worry, you will follow me soon. But look at Peter's response. Look where Peter places his hope and confidence. Verse 37, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Now Peter has never been shy to voice his opinion, never been shy to speak up. And in this case, the love for Jesus that he expresses, I will lay down my life for you, is, is really remarkable. It's admirable love that Peter shows. Peter sincerely offers his life to the point of death for the sake of Jesus. But this hope for Peter is entirely misplaced. The hope of Peter rests in what he himself can do, rather than in what Jesus has promised to do. He brags of his own love to the point of death for Jesus and isn't content with Jesus' words. He doesn't really trust Jesus' sovereign prerogative that he will come afterward. No, Peter wants to take matters in his own hands. And in one sense, Peter gets in the way of Christ's obedience to the Father because of his failure to trust the word of Jesus. Jesus then, to emphasize Peter's inability to walk out this trust in God, says to Peter, verse 38, Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Really, Peter? Really? You're going to lay down your life for me? What you think you can do on your own, only I can do for you. Then what was surely the most humiliating moment in the life of Peter, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Within a few short hours, Peter, you're going to deny me. You whom you say that you would lay down your life for, you are going to deny. Jesus effectively highlights the reality, and let us be sobered by this, the reality of Peter's incapacity to walk out the very command that Jesus has just given. Jesus said, love one another. Peter's not able to do this. Theologian Andreas Kostenberger writes, Peter's misguided pledge of loyalty furnishes an example of the insufficient nature of human loyalty, not undergirded by the Spirit's enablement. We are not capable to rest in the word and work of Christ on our own. We can't do it. But look where Jesus then goes. Immediately after telling Peter that he is going to deny Jesus three times, he turns to all of the disciples and says in verse 1 of chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Jesus spells out a hope for the future for the disciples. You really will follow me afterward. I'm preparing a place for you, and I am coming back for you. So take heart. Though you be prone to wander, though you be prone to leave the God you love, believe in God. Believe in Him. Here, offer your heart to Him. Offer it for that heavenly place. Offer it for His kingdom above. Now just a few minutes before in 1321, as we saw earlier, John records Jesus as being troubled in spirit because His hour had finally come. He was now fully taking on the mantle of suffering servant. He was going to walk through the pain of betrayal by Judas, the devastation of abandonment by his closest friends, the physical agony of the cross, and the terror of being separated from God and taking on the wrath of God for our iniquities. He was going to face all this in the next 24 hours. And Jesus was greatly troubled understandably so, distressed in spirit, but see his love for his own. Let not your hearts be troubled. Even though you're going to fail miserably, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Even though you can't fulfill my command on your own, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. Watch what I will do. Trust what I have promised. In this moment, Jesus simply and beautifully cares for his disciples. He gives them a future hope. And not only that, but as we'll see soon, he promises a future helper. You see, the very failure of Peter to trust the word of Jesus is often our failure as well. But Jesus has sent his helper, the Holy Spirit, to keep us as we sang about earlier, as a guarantee of our hope. The Spirit guarantees our hope until redemption comes. He's the guarantee of our hope to the praise of His glory. So believe in Him. In the world's eyes, life is all about what you can do, what you can accomplish, how great you can be, your desires, making the most of this one life. The world says just do it because you only live once. But God says, just rest, because you will live forever. Place your hope there. Rest in Him. Jesus Christ has walked this path before us. He goes in front of us, and He will come back for us. So the call for us today is to find contentment. To find contentment, to find rest in the word and work of another. To rest in our future hope, the promise of eternity. Russell Moore says, our life now is an internship for the eschaton. Our life now is an internship for the eschaton. Our life now is preparing us for all of eternity, for the final days. This is a life that confounds the world. The world doesn't have categories for the life of the Christian. The Christian is not to be grounded in what he can do. It's not grounded in the accumulation of money and stuff, the satisfaction of sexual desires, the wielding of power and security. All those things will fade. All those things are passing away. The world is passing away, as John writes in 1 John 2. The world is passing away along with its desires. 
But whoever does the will of God, whoever, whoever does the will of God, abides forever. The life of the faithful Christian reveals the confounding reality of the gospel. So through our commitment to God's glory, through our emulation of God's love, through our contentment in God's promise, we live a life that confounds the world. And we live this way so that all the world might see and might know that we're not citizens of an earthly kingdom. We're not citizens of this world, but an everlasting kingdom. We live for our eternal reality. This world, brothers and sisters, this world is not our home. So now as sojourners and strangers awaiting the coming of our King, we are to walk and we are to live in a way that confounds the world. We live for the glory of God as He has loved us. And we look forward to a coming day when, as the hymn says, Oh, that day when freed from sinning, I shall see your lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing of your sovereign grace. Oh, come, my Lord. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, my Lord, no longer tarry. Take my ransomed soul away. Send thine angels now to carry me to realms of endless day. So let us live as a church with our eyes fixed on that coming day. Let us not be consumed with this world and our, our fleshly fading desires, but let us be consumed with His glory. Let us live our lives to honor Him. And let us love one another as He has so graciously loved us. Bow your heads and pray with me. Father, our hope, our hope this morning does not rest in this world. Our hope does not rest in what we can do. Our hope does not rest in our actions or our words. Our hope rests in you. And thank you that you are the one who has promised to come back. You have not left us helpless. You have given us your spirit. And you will come back. You are the reigning king who rules over all who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise forevermore. You are the same yesterday, you are the same today, and you are the same forever. And we hope in your name. So Lord, fix our eyes on you. Fix, your, fix our eyes on the grace that you have shown us through Jesus Christ. And help us to walk faithfully in honor of your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.